Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. Talk number seven, from Faraday to Ferranti, given by Trevor Williams. Part B. Now this is in fact, it's supposed to have been the first uh, power system in London. The Grosvenor Gallery, this is the appearance of it when it was first built. Uh, as time went on, they elaborated it and put a more complex front on and, and made it uh, rather more special, but that was it. And uh, as you can see, it was a great success. The Paris Exhibition, which I think was um, launched really as a, as a competitor to the uh, uh, the great exhibition in, in England, in London, uh, Lindsay there, the, the founder, it was suggested to him that electric lighting would be a useful addition because, of course, uh, if the, uh, the gallery is dependent solely on daylight to illuminate its pictures, uh, the, the amount of trade that it can have is very much reduced, and particularly, of course, in the winter. So lighting was a, an, an enormous help to the profitability of the gallery. And so they got on to Siemens and they installed generators. There's some doubt. I, that there, there was either a, a shed on one end of the, of the gallery that was used or else it all went underground. But I think the generators perhaps went underground and the actual boilers perhaps were in the shed. You can imagine generators and steam engines, they wouldn't go awfully well with a, an art gallery. But there we go. The system worked, and the, the, all the neighbours saw the lights on in the gallery and said, God, we'd like some of that. Could we connect up to your generators? And so uh, there were circuits were introduced, to uh, connect up the, the local people, and the, uh, the system spread further and further away. Uh, I mean, the Strand is quite a long way from Grosvenor, and uh, also Knightsbridge. But as the system got larger, it got less and less effective, and all kinds of problems developed. The, the voltages would keep fluctuating, so the lights would go down. Someone, out, someone in one part of the system would operate a switch, and in the other part, it would, it would be affected. And so um, it was spoiling the working of the system, in, in actually, in the gallery, and the customers were not happy with it either. So Ferranti was called in. This was his big chance to advise on how the system could be improved. Now, the actual system they used, I can find no evidence to suggest why this was used, but, or who installed the system. But I can only guess that it was Siemens who, for some reason, chose to use this Goland and Gibbs system, which was an AC electrical distribution. It was used in the gallery it used, uh, I, I'm going to show you the system in a moment, but it used transformers based on the, that circular device that Faraday had invented. But the peculiar thing about it 
the power recipients, as they, we would expect, they received a terminal and they connected their bits of equipment, their lighting equipment, across those two terminals. But the transformers in the system were connected, uh, not all going to the same terminals, but one after another in a series, a daisy chain series. And that's, of course, why when somebody switched on, on something at one end, people at the other end lost their voltage and the lights went out. So Ferranti redesigned the system with a, a more conventional arrangement of transformers and more powerful generators. This, in fact, was Goland and Gibbs' patent application. And here you can see this is the engine, the driving engine, with belting up to line shafting here. And then here they'd had, had a... Um, this was the exciter, a small generator, to provide the magnetism in the main generator, again driven on the belting. And then this was the main generator with the, the, the current from the exciter. And then, so this had slip rings. It was producing alternating current. And uh, here he is, here's a meter measuring it. And the two lines running to these two transformers here. So these are the iron cores, and they've got two windings on them. One winding coming out to supply the loads, and these are the lamps, and the same on the other one. But the two transformers, they go up here, and then they're linked across like that, one after another, into the mains. And it was that serious connection I, I mean, I think that they, they didn't really understand how transformers worked because um, they tried then to put a constant current all through this. So there was, it was 80 amps, I think, which flowed through all, all this arrangement. So th this was the existing system in the uh, Grosvenor Gallery. The, the, the people of the Grosvenor Gallery uh, were impressed by Ferranti's new system, uh, the, the new system uh, with the parallel transformers worked well, and uh, they were the only company operating in London, and so they thought, well, they're onto a good thing here. Everybody wants this electricity. We could build a much larger power supply system and we could supply a much larger area of London, perhaps the whole of London, from this one system. So they got Ferranti in, and they appointed him as the chief engineer and electrician, and he was asked to propose a system that could supply this requirement essentially for the whole of London. Edison had built a system with many uh, local stations supplying low voltage DC. Direct current, just like a battery, low voltage, so it was safe, anyone could handle it, but the area covered by any one system was quite small, so they had a whole lot of generating stations to supply it. Ferranti decided to go to the other extreme. They took the Golan system with a single large power station outside London, 
to supply the needs of the whole of London at that time. And his big suggestion now was to supply a high voltage AC, which would be far and away more economical than the low voltage DC, with local transformers to step the voltage down. The, the basis of this, the, this diagram, is one really for a, a later system. But the power transmitted is the product of the voltage and the current, the V and the I. And so if you transmit with a low voltage, you have to have a high current. And if you've got a high current, the resistance in the cable produces a lot of wasted power. But if you have a high voltage, you have a low current, and the low current going through the resistance, there's not much wasted power, the system is more efficient. This is different from Ferranti's system, because Ferranti didn't use this input transformer, he used the generator itself to produce the high voltage. But then, when you get to your customer base, here are your houses, you have a transformer to bring the voltage down to a, a safe voltage for use in the individual houses. So Ferranti built his uh, system, went ahead and designed it, and being the sort of man he was, he liked to do everything himself, and he designed the whole lot. He designed the power station, the generators to go in the power station, cable, and the transformers. And this was his advertising for customers. This was the way he showed his uh, system. So that we've got a power station, distribution stations at 10 kilovolts. Here is the power station. He's just used a single wire to show the cable. This is the dis distributing stations. So that's the transformer taking the voltage down to 2.4 kilovolts, and then th that's the voltage that went around the streets of London, or intended to go around the streets of London, and then they had further transformers taking it down to 100 volts, and it had a switch and a fuse to protect it, and then the, in, in, in the individual houses, they too had a fuse, that was the switch, and that was the meter and those were the lamps in the individual houses. The frequency, 83.3 hertz, is a slightly peculiar one, but in those days they measured frequency in cycles per minute, and it was 5,000 cycles per minute uh, for the AC. So that was what he was going to be offering. London Electric Supply Company accepted. Here is the power station, and the, uh, this is all, again, Ferranti's work. He designed the power station. He didn't design the engines that were there, but I think he designed the boilers. And it's obviously adjacent to the water water's edge here for the delivery of coal and water. And this is a, a map, I'm afraid this is not very clear, but this is the Thames, this is Deptford Creek here, and this is the power station. It's got a great big chimney on it here because this photograph was taken later after the power station had been reorganized. 
people might well have been unwilling to accept having a high-voltage cable, 10 kilovolts, running along their streets. So they may had an arrangement with the London and Greenwich Railway line that uh, the cable could run along the railway line. So it was, there was no problem about digging up streets to accommodate it. It was simply run along the railway line, relatively easy to do. This is one of the engines incorporated into the power station. It says a Musgrove steam engine. I haven't been able to find anything about a Musgrove steam engine, so I have no idea why he chose that. And this is one of the Ferranti generators, and this is a belt drive between the steam engine, and so that's where the power is eventually coming from. Uh, I mean, it looks like a belt, but I think you'll find in practice, actually, it, it was a rope, uh, several ropes, in fact. The fact that the speed is so low, the, 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 this is a, a reciprocating engine, obviously, and comparatively low speed, and uh, equally the generators have to be at, uh, run at a low speed. Uh, the, these are the generators. Uh, it's got a sort of clamshell construction. You can see all the way around, these are these many poles. I mean, it's, since it's running so slowly, because it's 60 RPM, you need a hell of a lot of poles in order to get the relatively high frequency. And here is the drive, and these are these ropes, cotton ropes. And then this is looking from the other side. This, these are the windings of the alternator, which go into adjacent to these poles. It's astonishing that the, uh, the generator could produce uh, 10 kilovolts. I would have thought that was very difficult to design windings that would operate at 10 kilovolts. But anyway, that's what it says. 7.5 megawatt for anti-alternator. And these are the transformers. Uh, this is the, the 10 kilovolt down to 2.4. These don't look anything like the transformers that I have seen, but one can only guess that this outer bit is the low voltage winding and this inner bit is the uh, high voltage winding. But again, it doesn't look like anything that could take 10 kilovolts, but there we go. And here are the, the local type of transformer, again with um, the low voltage winding on the outside and the high voltage winding tucked in there somewhere, juicing the voltage to 100 volts for the local substations. One of his great successes, Ferranti's great success, was the high voltage cable, 10 kilovolt cable. No one, of course, made high voltage cables of this sort. So Ferranti had willy-nilly to do the whole thing himself. And what he did was to take a copper tube here and use that as the, uh, the, the central conductor. And then he used waxed paper wrapped around the copper tube and then put another copper tube over it and swaged the uh, outer copper tube down tightly around the whole thing so it all became a, a solid piece of equipment. The trouble was, of course, or one trouble was, that uh, you couldn't get copper tube in lengths greater than 20 feet. And so to do the seven or eight miles into London required a great many 
pieces of this cable and uh, they all had to be separately joined one to another all the way into London. So there was something like 5,000 joints had, had to be made. But amazingly, very few of these joints failed, so that seemed to, to work all right. The advantage, of course, of this method of construction was that you've got the high voltage right at the center, and then the outer one, which is the return conductor, that could be earthed. So the, the dangerous part was well away from any public content. The, the cable was so successful that even as late as 1933, when the, the whole systems had all changed, some of this cable was still in use. Well, one of the things that still puzzles me is how they bent it, how they took it round corners. I, I can't imagine how that was done, but I've seen no, no, no information about that. Of course, there was tremendous concern about 10 kilovolts floating around in London, uh, and it was constantly being brought before Ferranti's attention. And so he thought, well, he'd have to do an experiment or do a test to demonstrate how safe his cable was. And so what he did was to get the, the, a bit of cable that was in the ground and he got this chap to drive a spike through the cable from the earth's tube on the outside to the 10 kV core. And this chap is Collie and Frank is PA and he is a very brave or a very foolish man. <laughs> and he is holding on to that spike as this chap is pushing it in. And these are two inspectors from the Board of Trade. And there's one at the front here and this chap is clearly <laughs> hiding behind the other one. Anyway, as Ferranti intended, uh, the spike went straight through, produced a short circuit between the outer and the inner, and the fuse in the power station blew, and there was absolutely no danger to anybody. Nobody was hurt. Everything was perfectly straightforward and normal. But I don't think, although that would have con convinced anybody who'd seen it, I don't, I'm sure did actually convince the general public. This Marindin report to the Board of Trade. Ferranti and the London Electric Supply Corporation had been working away like mad, but in the meantime, a whole variety of small electricity companies had sprung up all over London. People wanted their, wanted lighting, and so companies sprang up to supply electricity to energize their lights. By the time the power station was coming into service, the situation was quite a lot different from what it had been when they started. The Board of Trade felt this was something that was their concern, and th this chap, Major Francis Marindin, he was a Royal Engineer officer, uh, there wasn't any army work at the time, so um, he had gone to work for the Board of Trade, and he was the army expert on rail transport, and he was very highly regarded. And 
as it says, and he received a knighthood for his work eventually. Well, he, he was also promoted. He became Colonel Magendin. Uh, the other interesting thing about him, he was a very keen amateur footballer, and he was one of the leading lights in the formation of the Football Association. He uh, was asked to have a look at the, all these small companies that had sprung up and the LESC and decide how this was all going to be organized. And so they decided that all the supply companies should uh, have a license to provide electricity and they should have specific areas in which they would provide the electricity uh, under the terms of their license. And that by that time, there were over 30 companies in London that they were all awarded an area, but the area awarded to the LESC couldn't possibly justify the size of the Deptford Power Station and the whole system which had been built up by Ferranti. And that doomed Ferranti's work, that the company just could not go on on the basis that it was only had this, going to have this small area in which it was going to supply electricity. All this vast thing, company which Ferranti had set up, that had to go. And so Ferranti lost his job. Exactly how he lost his job seems a bit uncertain. I mean, did Ferranti resign or was he pushed? It's not really clear. But the LESC system now uh, in Deptford Power Station uh, they got in new engineers and of course things had advanced quite a bit since Ferranti's original work had been done they took out some of the big alternators put in new smaller ones and uh, appropriate to the small amount of land which uh, they were now able to supply but of course the, the technology was, was changing rapidly and so the technology that Ferranti had been using in his original designs was not really appropriate. The main change, of course, had been the invention of the steam turbine. It had been invented specifically, of course, for driving propellers, but it was absolutely ideal for driving AC generators because it could go at much higher speed and the, the generators could get their frequency of the AC much more easily. You didn't have to have multiple poles to get the high frequency. Some of the big ones are just two poles driving at 3,000 RPM. Tesla, not sure what, he was a, an, a, an Eastern European chap, but he went to USA to uh, do his work, and uh, he invented the induction motor, which was and is the motor, uh, the electric motor of today. And he devised the idea of multi-phase AC systems. So the sine wave, it has a, an output uh, which has three separate outputs and they're each shifted in phase relative to each other. And in fact, actually, these were picked up in this country, first of all, in, in the generator in Newcastle and uh, a three-phase system was available. And the, the national grid, 
that, the, that was uh, adopted. This uh, 132 kV came the standard voltage. This is a double circuit. They've got three lines here for three phases and three lines on the other. So this is two lines in parallel so that if one fails, the other can take over. It's one of the uses of that. But that was the type of system which quite quickly started to appear around the country. With this uh, licensing system, there was nothing to discourage new power supply uh, companies from opening up. And so 625 power supply companies and 70 generating stations in London alone. Can you imagine? I mean, one of the advantages, of course, of, of the Deptford power station was that it was well out of the centre of London, and so the smoke was uh, kept well away. But 70 generating stations are all producing smoke all over London. The, the pollution must have been absolutely incredible. And so something had to be done about it. There was a whole series of acts Electricity Supply Act, and the only thing that changes is the date, as far as I can see. But this 1919 one was the one which uh, seemed to be the most effective one, and they decided that the supply companies had got to combine in these joint electricity authorities. Uh, they were called boards. The Central Electricity Board instituted the, this national grid, grid. The London Electricity Board, they were all called boards. First step in organizing a proper national system. But it was not until we actually got nationalization in 1948 that the uh, full rationalization of the system took place. And we got the British Electricity Authority Central Electricity Generating Board. Of course, since then, we've had privatization, so those two have disappeared as well. Well, there isn't space for me to go into the organization under, with privatization incorporated into it. Just a little indication of how disparate the electricity supplies were. Towards the end of my apprenticeship, I, I had to go and visit a, a, servi a servicing group from the London Electricity Board and we went r around repairing jobs with repair jobs and checking on things are working. And in one region uh, that we went to, it had never been converted from DC. It, had been, it was op operating a, a total DC system. Originally, it had had... Um, AC motors driving DC generators, but then shortly before I got there, they, these had uh, taken out of service and they had mercury arc rectifiers. They had great big uh, glass bulbs with mercury vapor inside them and the arc uh, rectified the current to supply. And it was a, a three-wire DC system and that would have been about 1950. So it's amazing, the freaks that still, ex still existed. And so just to finish off for uh, Ferranti, um, he established this uh, big ma manufacturing business. It was one of the major employers in uh, Lancashire and was, uh, was very effective to start with. 
But Ferranti was never the best of businessmen. Uh, I mean, he liked to do everything himself. Th that made the, the, the management structure, structure dif difficult. His electrical machines were out of date with the new uh, generators that were coming on. But switchgear, power metering equipment, and of course the company moved into electronics as that came along. And eventually, after Ferranti's death, it moved on into computers and things of that kind. Ferranti was uh, a great inventor and engineer, and he was honored for that. Got his DSC, FRS, and president of the Institution of Electrical Engineers. He was an engineer in the finest tradition of that profession, whose practitioners always face the stern discipline of making their ideas work. I, I forgot to read you what Ferranti said. After he had lost his post, LESC, he made his final report to the board of the company. And he says, I desire to call attention to the fact that from the commencement of your operations to the present time, no engineering or electrical difficulties whatever have arisen, which I have not been able to overcome. And at the present moment, I know of no weak point in your system and consider success to be now assured. The fact that current of 10,000 volts pressure is transmitted every day to London is the most complete answer to such doubts. The great advantage of the high-pressure system is apparent in that the loss involved in the transmission of current from Deptford to the distributing stations is inappreciable, while the facilities uh, for procuring coal and water there, sufficiency of room for machinery and appliances, and freedom from the legal and financial consequences attending the erection of generating stations in crowded neighborhoods cannot fail to tell their own tale in the working expenses of the current year. That was his view. Of course, not everybody shared that view because uh, what Ferranti had done was just design something and then people made it. There was no testing, nothing of the kind of testing that would be done in uh, products being produced today. And this was on a great big scale. And so other engineers would suggest that although he hadn't got any faults at this time, the faults would very quickly have appeared. The system, if it had been continued, would not have been as successful as Ferranti thought it was. So there we are. That's history for you. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Music